Good morning. Great to be here with you guys, as always, just to worship the Lord, uh, to sing unto Him uh, our praises, and now to submit ourselves to Him through His Word. So uh, we're here this morning to continue our study in the book of Luke. This morning we're going to begin uh, our study of Luke chapter 8 by looking at what will probably be a very familiar portion of Scripture for most of you. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 15, and a message that I've entitled, God's Word and Our Hearts. God's Word and Our Hearts. And so, if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and open up to gospel, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 8. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, you know, feel free to reach down and borrow one of the Bibles underneath some of the chairs around you. We do think that it's that it is important uh, to follow along in the Word as we go through it verse by verse. And so, uh, once you're there, will you please rise to your feet in honor of God and His Holy Word? I'm going to read our text in its entirety, and then we'll pray and ask God's continued blessings upon our time this morning. So, Luke continues his account of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ in chapter 8, verse 1, with the following. Now it came to pass afterward, that he went through every city and village, preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom had come seven demons, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who provided for him from their substance. Verse 4. And when a great multitude had gathered and they had come to him from every city, he spoke by a parable. A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and it was trampled down, and the birds of the air devoured it. Some fell on rock, and as soon as it sprang up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. But others fell on good ground, sprang up, and yielded a crop a hundredfold. When he had said these things, he cried, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Then his disciples asked him, saying, What does this parable mean? And he said, To you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is given in parables, that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Those by the wayside are those ones who hear. Then the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. But the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these have no root, who believe for a while and in time of temptation fall away. Now the ones that fell among thorns are those who, when they have heard, go out and are choked with cares, riches, and pleasures of life and bring no fruit to maturity. But the ones that fell on the ground, the good ground, excuse me, are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and this opportunity that we have just to uh, get into it. Lord, we thank you uh, that you've given to us your word. You haven't abandoned us to try and you know, figure things out on our own. You've given us your word that it might lead us and it might guide us and it, it might instruct us. And so, Lord, we just want to yield ourselves to your word. As we've opened up uh, our Bibles, Lord, I pray that our hearts and our ears, our minds might be open as well to receive all that your spirit desires to say to us this morning. Lead and guide us in our time. 
we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Our text this morning is actually a time marker of sorts regarding the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. The events spoken of here in chapter 8, they mark the beginning of a second tour of the region of Galilee, where Jesus would enter into some of the same cities and villages he had visited previously. As he returns to some familiar places, he continues preaching a message of repentance, of love and forgiveness. He continues bringing, or or your translation may read, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The gospel message that Jesus Christ has come to seek and to save that which was lost. He has come to set the captives free, not from the oppression of the Roman authorities, but from the bondage to their sin. The glad tidings of the kingdom of God, they speak about the coming of Jesus Christ to establish a spiritual kingdom that people can be part of through simple faith and repentance. And I do love how Jesus continued to persist in preaching and proclaiming the good news. You see, these were cities and villages that had already heard his message of repentance, But that didn't matter to Jesus. He continued to faithfully proclaim the word of God to the people of God. Of course, we do believe and trust that there would be new people in these crowds that perhaps didn't hear Jesus' message during his first tour through the land. And so he no doubt wanted to bring the message to them. But I also believe Jesus wanted to remind people of the importance and the magnitude of and the simplicity of the gospel message that they had already heard from him. The gospel isn't something that we should ever stop sharing. Jesus made an emphasis to proclaim glad tidings of the kingdom of, of God, and we have that same opportunity and responsibility to do as well. May we never grow weary of sharing the wonderful news of the gospel to the world around us. Even if they've heard it before, we continue to share it. We continue to declare it. We continue to live it out. Okay? The word of God, the gospel truth is something that needs to be shared repeatedly and frequently. And Jesus gives us that example here, returning to the same villages, same cities that he went to before, continuing to proclaim the same message over again. Well, as Jesus makes his way through the various cities and villages, we're told that he's accompanied by the 12, referring to his hand-selected 12 disciples, and that there's another group of people traveling with them as well. Luke mentions three by name, who all happened to be women who had been healed by Jesus from either demonic possession or some other sort of sickness or infirmity. We're actually introduced to Mary Magdalene for the first time in Luke's gospel account. Mary Magdalene's a very prominent uh, woman within the scriptures, within the gospel accounts. She was a woman that was severely possessed by demons, and Jesus healed her of her uh, demonic possession, freed her from that. And afterwards, she is seen following close by Jesus the rest of his days. She's actually seen there at Jesus's death, uh, at his crucifixion. She's there uh, when he's being buried, and she's actually there uh, at the tomb, and she's there at the, after the resurrection as well. In fact, she was the first person that our Savior revealed himself to after 
his resurrection. So a very prominent woman. We're told about another woman named Joanna who happened to be the wife of Chusa. Uh, Chusa served within Herod's inner circle as his personal steward. And so it's presumed that she was a woman of wealth and influence based upon her husband's high position within Herod's court. And then lastly, we're told about a woman named Susanna. And honestly, not much is known about who this woman was. This is actually the only time that she is specifically mentioned within the scriptures. And so the only details we have is what we have right in front of us about this woman, Susanna. These three women along with many others, we're told, provided for Jesus from their substance, meaning that they helped support Jesus and his disciples from their own resources, their own possessions, their own private means. While Jesus traveled from city to city and ventured across multiple villages, he and his disciples would have certain needs for provisions. And these three ladies specifically, and this unnamed host of others, were always there to help meet the needs and to support the work of the ministry. And it's just a good reminder for us of how important it is that we support the ministry of getting the word of God out. Okay, listen, we may not all be called to to be pastors and teachers like, you know, I, I work, you know, as a pastor and you guys have different jobs, different callings upon your lives, but we are all involved in full-time ministry. It just looks different, okay? But it doesn't mean that we don't have a, a part to play if, I'm, if you're not the one up here on Sunday mornings, you know, proclaiming the word and teaching the word. Okay? Without the prayerful support and provision of the body of Christ, pastors and teachers, they find it very challenging to focus their time and energy on the word and in prayer if they have to uh, work a side job or tent-making job is the ter- terminology we like to use, the Christianese. You know, I'm tent-making, I'm doing this other job on the side so that I can support myself in the ministry, but how much greater an opportunity that we might be able to support them that they might just sit, spend time in the word, in prayer, hearing from the Lord, and coming forward and declaring uh, God's message to God's people. And so what a great example these ladies are. They may not have been up in front leading the ministry, but their faithful service and support to the Lord is what sustained him and his disciples in a very practical manner as they went from place to place. You know, and things would have been much different if it weren't for their loving and gracious provision. Well, back to our text. Let's take a look at verse 4 really quick as we set up the next portion of this morning's text. Verse 4 says, And when a great multitude had gathered, and they had come to him from every city, he spoke by a parable. We'll pause right there. Okay, we're told here that a great multitude had gathered to Jesus, and that they had came from every city. Jesus' popularity is developing to an all-time high. As he re-enters some of the cities and villages that he has already taught in, that he's already performed various miracles within, the people, they are well aware of him, and they immediately flock to him as he enters the various cities and villages. But again, this wasn't just people from those particular cities and villages that were coming to Jesus. Word had spread, and people were coming from all around You see, this isn't your everyday run-of-the-mill type of multitude. These were great multitudes from all over the place that had gathered to see and to hear, to possibly be touched or healed by Jesus. The numbers were staggering. 
Okay, we need to be able to really understand and comprehend as we read through these and we read, oh, there's a great multitude. Okay, wait, there's a crowd of people. But how big was that crowd of people? Okay, we're going to see in Luke chapter 9, the very next chapter, Jesus feeds the 5,000. We're told that the count of 5,000 didn't even include women and children. And so we are talking about multitudes of thousands of people maybe even up to 10,000 people gathering around wanting to receive from Jesus. Of course, within a multitude of that size, there would be uh, the disciples of Jesus, uh, but there would also be onlookers, the curious, even the doubters, people looking for a show or people needing a miracle. And it's even probable that some scribes and Pharisees are within these great multitudes as well. And so it was a mixed group of people who came to Jesus for various reasons. And we're told in verse 4 that he spoke to the multitude by a parable. And this marks a change in approach to Jesus' teaching style. Previously, he would go from synagogue to synagogue teaching from the scrolls. But the sheer number of people doesn't really allow him the opportunity to meet in small synagogues throughout different villages. If he tries to go there, it's just going to be inundated with uh, so many people and be impossible Uh, to do anything worthwhile and so he takes his message outside to the multitudes and he begins to teach them not from the scrolls but with parables Uh, a simple definition of a parable is that it is an earthly story that conveys a heavenly truth okay it can get more detailed than that but just to keep it real simple okay the word parable means to cast alongside And so the idea is that an earthly story is cast alongside a heavenly truth. Parables were used to introduce the unfamiliar through the familiar in nature and life experience. Often parables would involve simple everyday life situations or very common and familiar items like bread and water and light and salt. The parable before us deals with agriculture The Jews were an agrarian society by and large, and so many people knew and understood the basic elements of farming and plowing and sowing seed. It was something that was very familiar to the people. And so, as we prepare to dive into this parable, we're going to break it up into three very simple sections. The first section, verses 5 through 8, declares for us the giving of the parable. The second section, verses 9 and 10, covers the reason for the parable And the third and final section explains to us the interpretation of the parable in verses 11 through 15. So let's take a look at this first section dealing with the giving of the parable in verses 5 through 8. Follow along with me as I read through it once again. Jesus says, A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and it was trampled down, and the birds of the air devoured it. Some fell on rock, and as soon as it sprang up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. And some fell among the thorns, and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. But others fell on good ground, sprang up, and yielded a crop a hundredfold. When he had said these things, he cried, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Some Bibles that have section headings identify this parable as the parable of the sower. Anybody's Bible say that? Parable of the sower, right? Okay, good. Uh, But I suggest a more appropriate title would be the parable of the soils. 
There was really not, there's no really wondering about the sower. Really what we want to figure out is these different soils and what they represent. So this is, I, I think, the parable of the soils is a better uh, title for this. It's a familiar portion of Scripture. I'm sure most of you guys have read it before, maybe studied it yourself. But Jesus speaks this parable to the multitude, realizing and understanding that the people before him were very familiar with farming practices. Many of these people depended upon crops and, and farms for their livelihood, but even if you weren't a farmer, you would still understand the basic principles of planting seed and growing crops. In his parable, Jesus speaks of a sower that takes the same type of seed and he sowed it throughout his fields. And the seed, as he tossed it about, ended up landing in different types of soil. Jesus went on to then detail the four different types of soils, very distinct from one another, that resulted in four distinctly different outcomes. The first soil Jesus mentioned was the wayside, or your translation may read that the seed fell along the path. Uh, and we're told that the seed, it never really penetrates the ground. It simply gets trampled down, ends up being eaten by the birds. Of course, if you've ever done any type of farming or crop planting, you know that this is a common problem. Oftentimes, birds would come in and try to get a free meal as you scatter the seeds of different crops you're wanting to grow. Seed that fell on the wayside or along the path where the ground was hard and well-trodden upon was an easy meal for birds hanging out close by. The second type of soil Jesus mentioned was where the seed fell upon some rocks. The idea here is that there wasn't much soil for the seed to dig its roots into, only a hard rock. The seed was able to sprout, but because the soil was just a very thin layer of earth that laid upon some rock, it was unable to have deep roots that went into the ground to draw out the much-needed water and nutrients from the ground. You ever seen a, a plant or perhaps some grass grow upon a, a, a rock surface or rocks before? Perhaps you've seen a small sidewalk that had some topsoil run off uh, and allowed for some grass or weeds to grow over the sidewalk. Uh, I, I don't know why, but I just picture, it's probably because I used to have to clean it out all the time, but it's just a muddy gutter, like a concrete gutter um, is what I picture in my head. Um, those plants, they, they just grow from that thin top layer of soil. And so they're very easy to pull up. When you pull them up, you usually pull up the whole entire top layer of soil along with it. You grab you know, one thing and you just get this long train of weeds or whatever that are all connected. Okay? Um, it's like a, a long rope. Um, anyways, that's how I envision the type of scenario Jesus is talking about here. It's very thin topsoil, and so there's nothing for it to really put its roots down into. A seed scattered upon rocks where the roots have nowhere to go because there's no do dirt for the roots to dive into. So we're told that this seed withered away because it lacked moisture. It lacked the nutrients uh, and the water needed from the soil. And so it lacked a, a strong root system. The third type of soil Jesus mentioned was among the thorns. Now, when it says thorns, it doesn't just mean the points or the pricks found on some plants, but speaks of a briar, okay, a type of bush or plant that produces those pointy, prickly thorns. And unlike the seed cast upon the rock, this seed was able to send roots down into the soil and spring up, but because of the thorns next to them, the plant was choked suffocated by the overwhelming presence of the thorns. Mark's parallel account says of this particular seed that it yielded no crop. The result was that the seed on this type of soil was fruitless. 
Okay, it never yielded a crop. And then the fourth and final type of soil Jesus mentioned was the good ground or the good soil. The seed was able to send down roots um, deep into the soil. It was free of thorns, and it ended up yielding a crop a hundredfold, okay, a very productive and fruitful harvest. And then Jesus concluded the parable by declaring something very important at the end of verse 8. He cried, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And it's safe to assume that most every one of the people amongst the great multitude had ears to hear, but Jesus wasn't referring to physical anatomy here, okay? The phrase, he who has ears to hear, let him hear, implies with it not just hearing words, but understanding the words and being obedient to those words. Hearing is something that's very important in our text this morning. The word hear and hearing, they're used five times. It's a major theme of what Jesus is speaking about. Jesus calls people to hear his words, to understand them, to obey them. Recall that this parable comes on the heels of what had transpired back at the end of chapter 7. Remember that chapter 7 ended with Jesus attending a dinner party at Simon the Pharisee's house. Simon wanted to try and figure out if Jesus really was who he said he was. He wanted to try and figure out if Jesus was a prophet sent by God or not. There was tons of evidence that had been presented to the multitudes as to the true identity of Christ, that he was the Messiah sent by God and indeed was God in the flesh, that he was empowered by the Holy Spirit. All of that evidence, it demanded a verdict. Jesus desired that people would come to the proper understanding of who he is. And he called them to listen very carefully, to hear, to understand what he was saying and to make a choice to believe the evidence and the testimony of the Spirit of God. The Scriptures teach us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Here we have the Son of God speaking forth the words of God to these multitudes, desiring that they would hear, that they would comprehend and obey. Well, he's just spoken a parable, an earthly story, and, and it conveys a heavenly truth. And so Jesus is challenging the great multitude to understand the heavenly truth of this parable, to seek out its truth. Well, lucky for us, Jesus is going to break down this parable and explain it all to us later on. Let's continue, though, turning our attention to our second section, the reason for the parable in verse 9 and 10. It says, then his disciples asked him, saying, what does this parable mean? And he said, to you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is given in parables that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. The disciples, they came to Jesus asking about the parable. Um, the other gospel accounts of this event tell us they did so later on when they were alone with Jesus. Mark chapter 4 verse 10 tells us that. Here in verse 9, the disciples ask, what does the parable mean? Now, Matthew's parallel account tells us there was actually a second question that they asked. Not only did they ask what the parable means, but according to Matthew, they also asked, why do you speak to them in parables? They asked two questions. Why did Jesus speak to them in parables? And what does the parable mean? And you know what? I'm very glad the disciples often didn't get things and they weren't afraid to come out and ask Jesus things. It makes it so much easier for us to understand when Jesus spells it out for them. Okay, Jesus is going to answer the question from Matthew first regarding why he spoke to them in parables. 
and so in the very first part of verse 10, Jesus gives the first reason for why he spoke in parables. He mentions the fact that for the disciples, it's been given to them to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. Now, word mysteries, it speaks of secrets or hidden truths. Some of your translations may even translate that word as secrets. But the biblical use of the word mystery is not the same as we understand it today. When we talk about a mystery, ooh, it's the mystery of the Bermuda Triangle. Nobody knows. It's, ooh, you know, that's not what mystery means when used in a biblical context. Okay? When used in a biblical context, the understanding of this word implies something that was once hidden but now has been made known. Something that was secret and unknown by man, but is now revealed by God for people to know and understand. And so what was this mystery about the kingdom of God that had been revealed to the disciples? What truth were they aware of that had been previously hidden from most of all the other people? I believe it's speaking of the true identity and nature of Jesus. Jesus is that which was hidden, but has now been revealed by God. For years and years, decades upon decades, centuries even, the true identity of the Messiah had been hidden. The people knew certain characteristics, certain attributes and facts about the Messiah, but they didn't know who the Messiah would be. It was a mystery until Jesus arrived on scene and he started fulfilling the prophecies regarding the Messiah and he went about teaching with authority and healing people with the power and authority of God. God revealed Jesus Christ to be uh, to the world as the long-awaited Messiah. But not everyone had ears to hear. Not everyone was willing to receive the testimony of God through the Holy Spirit. Now, in the second half of verse 10, Jesus gives another reason for why he spoke in parables, and it brings up the rest of the people. These are not the disciples of the Lord. Okay? They are not followers. They represent those who are not part of the kingdom of God, those who have rejected the testimony and the conviction of the Holy Spirit. We would classify them as unbelievers. And to them, to the unbelievers, Jesus speaks in parables to conceal the secrets and the hidden things from those that would not receive it. Those who would not have ears to hear, they would not understand, they would not obey. Now, some of you might be thinking to yourself, why would Jesus want to conceal the truth from people? You know, and some might even wonder or think that, well, that's not fair for Jesus to conceal things from others. Listen, Jesus concealed the truth to them as an act of mercy. You see, it it wasn't as if Jesus wanted to keep people in the dark. We have to understand the surrounding context here. Jesus has been very open. The Spirit of God has been testifying of him, and his miracles are proof of God's kingdom come. He made it very clear who he was, and that people needed to choose whether they would follow him and his word. And some people responded, and some people rejected. Some people were not willing to understand. They were not willing to receive, not willing to obey. And it's interesting that Jesus would quote from Isaiah chapter 6 in connection to why he spoke in parables to those who would not obey, who would not receive God's testimony. For it is in Isaiah chapter 6 where Isaiah saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. As Isaiah heard the cry of the seraphim describing the Lord, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. It is then that Isaiah knew that he was a man undone. And he pronounced, woe is me, 
He realized just how unworthy he was to be in the presence of a holy God. He realized how much of a sinner he was. He realized the vast greatness that separated him from the Lord. His sin was so evident in comparison to seeing the presence of the Lord. The seraphim, they came, they brought a live coal to Isaiah. They placed it on his lips and purged Isaiah of his sin. And then the Lord called out, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And it was Isaiah who replied, Here am I, send me. And God did send Isaiah. He sent Isaiah to an unrepentant people, a generation who did not understand, who would not understand, who had eyes to see, but would not perceive, who had ears to hear, but would not understand with their heart. They willfully chose to disobey, to not receive God's word. God sent Isaiah to proclaim the Lord's message to them in preparation for God's discipline upon them for rejecting their God and churning to the false gods of the surrounding nations, for churning to the surrounding nations for support and security instead of trusting in the Lord their God and trusting uh, Him for their protection. God was going to allow them to be captured, sent off into exile in Babylon. And this is why Isaiah was sent to them, to testify to them about their rejection of God. And it's very fitting that Jesus would quote Isaiah in connection to those who would not obey, those who would not understand, those who did not, would not have ears to hear. Because they picture the same exact audience of people that Isaiah was sent to a people who rejected the Lord and his testimony regarding himself. And so out of an act of mercy, he conceals these truths, for he knows that everybody will have to stand and give an account on the day of judgment for the truth that has been revealed to them. The scriptures teach us that for everyone to whom much is given from him, much will be required. And to whom much has been committed of him, they will ask the more. And so we see that out of an act of mercy towards the unhearing, towards the unrepentant generation, he conceals these hidden truths from them. Now, the second question that they asked, the one we read of here in our text, is what does this parable mean? And this is what we learn in the third section of our text, okay, the interpretation of the parable, which I am very grateful for. You know, sometimes you read through the parables and you have to try and figure it out. And you're like, I think this is what this means. I think this, you know, I'm not sure, but it seems like this fits. But every else, there's always someone else that has a different idea. And it's like, well, I guess that could fit as well. It, we have the answer. Jesus gives us the interpretation. We don't have to worry about the interpretation of this particular parable We're going to get into some other ones. We'll try our best to decipher where we don't get the answers. Uh, But here, Jesus gives us the answers. He gives us the interpretation. He explains the spiritual truth regarding this parable in verses 11 through 15. So let's read. It says, Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Those by the wayside are the ones who hear. Then the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. But the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these have no root, who believe for a while and in time of temptation fall away. Now the ones that fell among thorns are those who, when they have heard, go out and are choked with cares, riches, and pleasures of life, and bring no fruit to maturity. But the ones that fell on the good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. 
So Jesus gives us the interpretation here, and he begins by identifying for us what the seed is. Jesus says that the seed is the word. It is the word of God. And I like how the word of God is pictured as a seed. According to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, the word of God is living and it is powerful. And so too, a seed is living and, and powerful. It has the power to grow and to develop into something far greater than itself. First Peter chapter 1, verse 23 describes for us the incorruptible seed which lives and abides forever as none other than the word of God. And so we see here the Word of God. It's living and it's powerful. It abides forever. And we have the responsibility and privilege of sharing it with others. Now, the sower is not properly identified, but it is safe to assume that it would be anyone who speaks forth the Word of God. Anybody that is sharing, that is scattering the seed, sharing the Word of God uh, would represent the sower. Um, and we're called. I believe, to be sowers of the word of God. Second Timothy chapter 4 exhorts us, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be churned aside to fables. You know, some think that this exhortation only applies to pastors. And I understand why it's written to Timothy. He's a pastor and he's, you know, exhorting him in this. But listen, we are all called to be proclaimers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to get the word out. We need to sow the word in our own hearts and in the hearts and lives of the people around us. Well, back to our text. Jesus explains the hidden truth of the first soil that he mentioned, the wayside in verse 12. In this verse, we also come to the realization that the soils, they actually represent different conditions of our hearts. The seed scattered on the wayside is likened to when the word is shared, but it isn't understood. It isn't acted upon. It isn't obeyed. And so it sits there only to be taken up by the wicked one, Satan. Recall as well that the wayside is the worn out path, the path that is trodden down uh, upon. It's compact, and to me, it's a picture of something very hard, and it represents a hard heart. And Jesus is saying that when the Word of God is shared with a hard heart, it doesn't even stand a chance of survival as the enemy comes by and takes up that Word that was shared. Their hard heart prevented themselves from being able to receive and to understand the Word. You know anybody like that in your life? Someone whose heart is just hard toward the Lord and His Word. Someone that the enemy is just robbing by taking away that seed that would be planted in their heart. And I think if we give it enough time, we can all think of people in our lives that just have that hard heart and Satan is doing a number on them, robbing them blind. Or maybe you're here today and you might say, that's me. You know, I've allowed my heart to become dull and callous. It's hard now, I've been resisting the Lord for so long, and the enemy's been robbing me blind. Listen, if that's you, you don't have to continue to resist anymore because God can take a hard heart, and he can break it, and he can remake it, and he can make it soft and new and pliable again. I've seen him do it before, and my encouragement, my exhortation to you this morning would be to surrender your heart to the Lord, to give your life to Jesus Christ. 
In verse 13, Jesus explains the hidden truth of the second soil he spoke of, where the seed fell upon the rocks. Jesus describes for us someone who receives the word with a whole lot of excitement in their heart, okay? A whole lot of joy, a, a whole lot of emotion, yet he doesn't take the time to build a foundation. There's no root in himself. His heart would be described as shallow. A shallow heart lacks depth. This represents the kind of heart that makes an emotional decision that doesn't have any base to build upon. This person with this kind of heart takes off all excited but does not endure for at the sight of his first difficulty he stumbles. I've known people like that before. Maybe you have as well. They come to church. They maybe go to a special concert or event and they make an emotional decision to follow Christ. And then all of a sudden, you know, difficulties come. Tribulation comes illness or death in the family or tough times at work, a little persecution from former friends, and all of a sudden they're stumbling, they're doubting, and they're wondering why things aren't all all exciting. Man, it used to be so exciting to serve God, and, and now it's not. And oftentimes they turn away from God and they think, you know, well, I tried the God thing, you know, and it just didn't work for me. Well, of course it didn't work. You didn't have any foundation, okay? You had nothing to build upon. The word never went deep enough into their hearts to grow roots. You see, this type of person falters and stumbles because they never took the time to build a foundation, to let their roots go down deep. They had a shallow heart. In verse 14, Jesus describes the secrets of the third soil, the thorns. He said the person who received the seed among the thorns is someone that hears the word but is choked out by too many outside influences. His heart is too crowded. The cares of this world, picture someone who hears the word and is going along and then all of a sudden the things of this world become increasingly and increasingly more important to them than the things regarding the world to come, the kingdom of heaven. The deceitfulness of riches is used to uh, identify uh, this lie of riches because, listen you guys, riches lie. (laughs) Riches tell you that they'll make you happy that things and possessions are important to live a successful and joyful life. And what ends up happening is that their possessions possess them. They come, become enslaved to working uh, overtime, working a second job. Families believe they need a second income so that they can have you know, the finer things of life. You know, If we want to have all these, these things and we want to keep up with everybody else, we need to have another source of income. The person with the crowded heart has fallen prey to the lies of riches, that riches will satisfy and that they will bring happiness. Listen, riches cannot do that for you. Only Jesus Christ can satisfy completely and fill our lives with joy unspeakable. These people, they start off with great joy, but they get choked out by the things of this world, seeking fulfillment in them rather than in the Lord. In verse 15, we have our fourth and final soil revealed to us. It's the good soil. Jesus described this person as someone who heard the word and understood it, and basically their life was marked by fruitfulness. Jesus told his disciples in John 15, verse 8, the following. He says, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit. God desires us to bear much fruit. And that is a mark of a true believer. A true believer will be fruitful. 
Okay, Galatians tells us in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, that the fruit of the Spirit is love. And I think it's an interesting verse to consider for the verse says the fruit of the Spirit is love singularly. The fruit of the Spirit is love, not the fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Love is the fruit of the Spirit. Love is the evidence by which we know someone truly is walking with the Lord. Our love for the Lord and our love for others. Because Jesus said the whole law was summed up in those two things. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. You see, the evidence that we look for in the life of the believer is the fruit of love. Okay? Some people say, oh, well, you know, how do you know if someone's saved? Well, they're going to do this or they're going to do that. Or, you know, different people have different beliefs. But listen, what we would say is love. Do they have the fruit of love in their life? This is what Jesus is looking for in our lives as believers. He's looking for fruitfulness. Okay? It's interesting, the other gospel accounts, they talk about a different harvest, like some 30-fold, some 60, some 100. Here in Luke, it just says 100-fold. The idea is, look, it's not a matter of how much fruit. You know, some of us might be more fruitful than others. That's okay, but are we bearing fruit? This is what Jesus is looking for. And as we look over these different types of hearts, the hard heart, the shallow heart, the crowded heart, and the fruitful heart, I do believe that every heart in this world is one of these four hearts. I believe that there within that great multitude of people that were before Jesus, every person there had one of those four hearts. And I believe today that in this church that every one of us has one of these four hearts. Now, I don't know if all four of these hearts are represented here today, but I do know this, that we all have one of these four hearts. And my hope is that all of us would be able to identify our hearts as fruitful hearts. And at the same time, even if we do identify with the faithful heart, I do think we need to be careful that we don't allow characteristics of these other hearts to pop up in our life. I think you can have a fruitful heart but still show signs or characteristics of some of these other hearts. And so we need to take inventory. We need to do a little heart check from time to time. And I would encourage you to do so today, to take inventory. And as you take inventory of your heart, I want you to consider if any of these characteristics are evident in your heart. Have you allowed your heart to grow dull or callous or hard? Maybe you've been coming to church for a long time and you've heard so many Bible sermons, so many preachers talk that you've gotten to the point where you've allowed your heart just to get a little hard. And it takes something really special and really powerful to penetrate your heart. Most days you kind of come, you're like, yeah, I, I already knew that, you know. It takes something really, you know, oh, I never heard that before to really penetrate and allow you to actually receive something. Be careful that you don't allow your heart to become hardened. Remember that the hardened heart allows the enemy to come in and rob you of the blessings that his, his word brings. So don't let that sneak up on you. Have you allowed your heart to become a bit shallow? Your roots just don't seem to go as deep as they once did. You feel like your walk with the Lord is predicated upon your feelings and happenings in your life. You're, you're very emotional. Don't allow yourself to let your emotions create in you a, a shallow heart. 
Have you allowed your heart to get crowded? You know, one thing I didn't point out regarding the crowded heart is that in verse 14, it states that after it gets choked out, it becomes unfruitful. And some suggest that perhaps this indicates that it was fruitful at one time. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches have choked it out and made it become unfruitful. Have you allowed your heart to get crowded with things of this world and it's starting to affect your fruitfulness in the Lord? Was the Lord producing all sorts of fruit in your life at one time, but now now it just seems like you've got less and, and less time for the Lord because of all the other things that are going on in your life? We need to guard our hearts against that. We need to guard our hearts against these characteristics of each of these hearts, the hard heart, the shallow heart, the crowded heart. We need to ensure that we remain fruitful. And the way in which we do that, church family, is by sticking close to Jesus, by abiding in Him. Jesus declared, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing, Jesus says. How we need the Lord Jesus in our life. Listen, we cannot bear fruit apart from him and so church family stick close to jesus that's the that's the application here okay if you walk away with anything today may it be this stick close to jesus abide in him and as you do so you will be that fruitful heart okay you will be uh, the picture of that good soil in which he produces much fruit amen amen let's pray father we thank you for your word And we thank you for this opportunity that we have just to open it up. And Lord, we thank you. Lord, that you've kind of given us the answers to this parable. We didn't have to try and figure it out. Lord, um, you kind of broke it down for us very simply, Lord. We thank you for that. And Lord, I, I pray that we would be able to take this spiritual truth that's taught by this parable, Lord, and make application to our own lives. That we would check our hearts, make sure that our hearts aren't hard, that they aren't shallow or or crowded out by you know a whole bunch of other things that just aren't as important as you may our hearts be fruitful may we declare your word may we be a sower of your word in our own hearts lord but in the hearts and lives of those around us as well and so lead us and guide us we pray we thank you for your word and the blessing that it brings the fruit that it brings as we stick close to you and abide in you. We love you. We give you ourselves in Jesus' name. Amen.